Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Great pleasure to welcome everybody to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. I am honored to be joined uh, today by Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We're going to start with Phil this week. Uh, I'll turn it to you, Phil. Let's uh, get going. Sure. Thanks, John. So this week I thought I'd talk about something I saw on Twitter about a week or two ago. As you guys know well, I have a strong love-hate relationship with Twitter. There's a lot I I really can't stand about it, but you know, there, there occasionally are some things that just make it such a worthwhile platform. And and this was one of them. So a, a user who I think is his real name is Trung Fan uh, published a list of his unofficial list of the 16 greatest investments ever. And of course, that's ridiculous and arbitrary. How do you how do you winnow that down and and get to just 16? And I'm not even sure it, there's actually 16 on here. But anyway, um, the point remains that it's a fascinating list and it shares a lot of interesting. The, the investments on here have a lot of commonalities, and so I thought I'd go through a couple of them. And then I'm going to throw out a couple of my favorites, and then I want to hear what John and Elliot think about what are the best investments they've ever seen over the years. So as you would expect on this list, there are a bunch of investments over the last 10 and 20 years in some uh, extremely well-known and large tech companies now. He starts right off with the Naspers investment in Tencent, which was made apparently in 2001. He, he, and again, so these are all his numbers. I verified a few of them where the, the information was public and easily available. But so if there's any mistakes or issues here, uh, it's my responsibility for not uh, finding a better source. So take this for informational value, just like everything else. It's it's not written in stone. This is not the gospel by any stretch. But apparently Naspers to, in Tencent went from 32 million to well over 250 billion. So that seems like a pretty, a pretty good one up towards the top of the list. Then again, SoftBank, into Alibaba. I mean, SoftBank's caught a lot of flack recently for good reason, but um, 20 million into Alibaba uh, just over 20 years ago. Uh, pretty impressive. Facebook obviously minted some very famous billionaires. Um, Eduardo Saverin was actually granted shares, apparently worth about 15,000 at the time. That's made him a billionaire about 15 times over since then. Peter Thiel, you know, one of his first big home runs there in Facebook, you know, that was actually half a million. Uh, it was a pretty meaningful investment, investment by most people's standards. Uh, you know, one thing I'd forgotten actually was that Jeff Bezos invested personally in Google. I think that was in the Everything Store. If not, I read it somewhere else a long time ago. But he was one of the first five shareholders in Google, apparently, and put about a $250,000 into it. In 1998, um, and that was a 3.3 million share block by the time it was all said and done, worth many million, worth many billions of dollars, which is pretty unbelievable. But you know, Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins also put in several million that turned into many billions. Uh, there were some individual investors uh, that put in you know six figures and became billionaires on the basis of it. Uh, and then speaking of Bezos, the, you know, the friends and family rounds at, at Amazon specifically. I mean, he he's uh, well known for saying that he had to take over 60 meetings to get just a handful of investors to raise a million dollars um, at 50 or 100,000 a, 
a check. And so, you know, his, his parents were in for 250 and that ended up, you know, netting them tens and tens of billions. Um, there were some private investors in Shopify, 750K turned into several billion. You know, and again, the, the interesting thing here, I guess, that's that stands out to me is that these are all kind of venture capital style investments with a lot of survivorship bias, right? I mean, I, I'm sure all these individual people have made meaningful investments in plenty of other companies that turned out to be absolute zeros. So the question that I'd love to know is at the time they were made, I mean, Jeff Bezos could have afforded easily 250K in 1998, but you know, you wonder about some of the other investors that were smaller that, that risked really meaningful chunks of their net worth and, and how that worked out. Um, it, you know, there is a lot of survivorship bias there for sure. Elon's Elon Musk bet on himself, you know, he put 70 million into Tesla all those years ago. It's worth, you know, many tens of billions now, 100 million into SpaceX, into SpaceX also worth tens of billions now. Um, some that weren't on the list that people kind of chimed in in the comments. Um, you know, it's funny, everybody likes to dog Buffett for missing tech or this or that or the other thing. And IBM didn't really go anywhere, et cetera, et cetera. But um, he's got 907 million shares of Apple worth 122 billion, most of which were acquired in 2017. The cost basis there is only about 31 billion. Uh, so pretty hard to find a place you could make $90 billion of <laughs> unrealized gains over four or five years. I mean, in terms of just the sheer scale and scope of that investment, um, that's right up there for me. It's just so incredibly hard to deploy that kind of money. To put $30 billion into anything and have it quadruple in four years is just astounding. I mean, it's just so different than putting 10000 or 100000 or even a million into something and watching it quadruple. I mean, that's just a completely different game. And likewise, the, the buyback that Apple itself did, which helped Buffett along the way, of course, I mean, you remember when they got pressured into doing the dividend in 2012 and then starting in 2013 and really accelerating it in 2017 and 18 and beyond, um, they spent $380 billion to buy back about a third of their stock. Um, so again, that $380 billion has been multiplied a couple of times over. Uh, you know, The average price of all of those repurchases is under $40 a share. Um, so that was pretty darn impressive. A personal favorite of mine, uh, something I actually looked at at the time it was Liberty doing kind of a distressed financing for Sirius XM, kind of around the financial crisis. Uh, got pretty much all of their capital out of it in six months, something around that. And then, you know, got all the equity in the company, you know, roughly three quarters of the company. Now it's over almost 80% of the company, you know, worth 25 billion or something like that. So that that's a pretty incredible one. Um, Priceline bought booking.com for hundred million. That's easily worth 50, 60, 70, 80 billion now, at least. The GGP equity, I was dumb enough to not do anything, but I distinctly remember looking at that and thinking, you know, it, it, in the financial crisis, it was crazy, right? This was in 2009, but when they filed, it was very clearly a balance sheet problem, not an asset value problem. And uh, it was a, there was a pretty compelling case there laid out um, by Pershing Square that there was actually equity value there. The same was actually true a couple of years later in American Airlines, which was ironic as well. Uh, but the, the GGP equity uh, investment there was was pretty compelling. I mean, again, you could have made a semi-credible argument, I guess, that the judge was going to do something goofy or that the capital markets would close down again or something. But that ship had mostly sailed. So that, that was a... 
It wasn't totally airtight. I guess on a related note, the the thing that I highlighted is maybe my favorite personal investment. Um, and it, it stemmed from that period of time. I guess this just highlights my risk-averse nature was uh, there were bonds in, in quite a few financial companies, uh, you know, well after the dust had settled, after the Fed had really kind of agreed to come in, guns a-blazing, after the financial markets had stabilized. So this is well into 2009. You know, I was buying... Catmark Bonds, it was a real estate, mostly commercial real estate company, uh, where you could buy the bonds at you know roughly 60 cents on the dollar. And they had more than 70 cents of net cash on the books. And they were in bankruptcy, but they were on the right path. And so there really wasn't a strong case to be made that you would ever recover anything below what you were paying. And these were the fulcrum. So you were going to get the equity on the upside, which you indeed did. And if you'd been smart enough to hold on until the bitter end, which of course I wasn't, I sold too early, but um, you made multiples of your initial investment, you know, via the reorganized equity when the, when the crisis inevitably passed and, and they were able to realize a lot of asset sale proceeds when they sold off some of their properties. I mean, it was, it was as low a downside investment as I've ever seen with just enormous upside. And, and that's always what I'm looking for, as opposed to some of these venture investments where, again, you know, we all talk about the ones that hit and are super successful, and, and that's great. And if you have the right insights or if you have the right portfolio construct, those are obviously fantastic, but they're, they're more difficult to get right, in my opinion. You know, another one that, that stands out to me that I don't think gets enough attention, uh, obviously, everybody wants to talk about Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, but I don't think people realize that for all the deserved attention that Charlie Munger gets, Sandy Gottesman actually owns a lot more of Berkshire than Charlie ever did. I mean, he's he his share levels have moved up and down a little bit over the years, but I looked it up this morning on Bloomberg and he's 2.8% of the A shares. I mean, it's over $7 billion. And for all intents and purposes, I mean, he sat on that for what, at least 50 years, probably in decent size. And and he's been on the board for a long time too. But I mean, again, it just highlights the enormous power of sitting on your rear end when you have something good. I mean, he knew very early on how special that company and the people involved really were. And, uh, you know, it's been <laughs> an unbelievable compounding for him. Likewise, I mean, you know, IPOs are a common topic in this area. And if you read 100 Baggers or any of the other studies of uh, really interesting long-term investments that, that return many multiples of their capital. Um, you know, really relatively boring businesses. I was just reading Costco. Um, you know, they, they went public in late 1985. Um, and that's been over a 16% compounded return for, you know, it would be 40 years before long. I mean, it's really astounding when you can pile up money at that kind of rate for that long. It's enormously impressive. So those, those are some of my favorites. I, there's tons of investments out there. Hopefully, John and Elliot have some good ones. Um, and the commonalities that, that stand out to me are just the long holding periods and the patience. You know you're going to get hit in the face with lots of volatility. You know you're going to have to debate you know, personal concentration or fund level concentration. Um, again, I don't, I don't know if this is true, but somebody was telling me that um, when Nomad was, was getting roughly had for roughly 50% of their assets in Amazon, they were actually kind of forced to uh, sell down their stake. And that was one of the contributing factors that led them to decide to close the partnership. But let's say you're lucky enough to own, uh, you know, some complete home run that returns a hundred times your capital. And, and you have something like 50% of your own personal portfolio on Amazon. 
you know, let's say five years ago or even 10 years ago, what would you do? I mean, it's, it's enormously difficult to actually sit there and hold these things for a really long time, but that's really what it takes. I mean, it's, it's really never that obvious or that easy when you're looking at it in hindsight. And that there's really two kind of frameworks for it then. I mean, you either need explosive growth. So the company's just growing like crazy and taking all kinds of market share or plowing a new field and, and really developing some new market, or there's a, dispre- a distressed entry price with a massive turnaround, right? So that would be more of what I described with GGP and American Airlines and Liberty Sirius. Um, you, you know, that that would be in that category. And those are, again, have been historically more of my hunting ground and it's just been almost impossible to find any good ones there for a number of years now, including shockingly 2020. Uh, but then the explosive growth path is, I think, the one that's much more popular and, and probably much more fruitful and productive. I think that there are uh, more opportunities there, but there's a lot more risk and a lot more chance of loss there too. So uh, those are some that that jump out to me. What do you guys think, John Elliott? What are your, uh, what are your favorite greatest investments of all time? What would be in your Mount Rushmore? Yeah. So, I mean, you obviously hit on a lot of great ones and I'd maybe emphasize a few points on a few of those before going in my own. Uh, And I think you kind of touched on this, but like most of the greatest investments, you're talking about something that's venture where small dollar sum turned into massive amounts. And I think that's what's extremely impressive about the the Buffett Apple investment because it was a massive investment itself and the dollar volume increase was just enormous. So I think that's pretty cool um, and huge. I was going to say Bezos and Google, which is interesting and all, but Google itself, you know, as corporate M&A, as far as corporate M&A goes, like each of DoubleClick, YouTube, and Android are extremely impressive in their own right. You know, people talk about Google as a poor capital allocator and strategist, but I'd say those are three of the best examples of corporate M&A. I think eBay itself offers several interesting examples. First with, um, you know, Benchmark was one of the venture investors in eBay. And this was one when you said you were introducing this topic. I was like, oh, I I remember this. $6.7 million was turned into $5 billion in just like two and a half years. 714x. Just insane. I don't know if something like that could have happened outside of, you know, that kind of environment. But you know, eBay was still kind of worth more than it was even when, you know, a couple years uh, after that investment. So that's pretty interesting. I should have added two PayPal's on, definitely on that list, right? What did they, I think they paid a billion and a half according to this for PayPal. And that's worked out pretty well. Exactly where I was going next. So I was going to go down the tree, right? They acquired PayPal. That was a really good one. And then PayPal's acquisition of Braintree, which owned Venmo. Like a lot of people say PayPal acquired Venmo. Not exactly true. They acquired Braintree, which owned Venmo. And, you know, each of those assets are incredibly interesting, but that's, you know, just a massive, massive uh, return and strategically important initiative that you couldn't have seen at the time they made it. Um, I think, you know, Disney has several good examples, but Pixar is like definitely stands up there in terms of corporate M&A. I also looked at the, you know, individual investor angle. So there's that gentleman, John Phillips, who is the sh- one of the Shopify investors you talked about. I think it was like, you know, a couple hundred thousand turned into a billion dollars. Just obscene. Yeah, there was an there was an article written about that. Yeah, this, I think it was a Forbes article. Uh, let's see, where did it go? Yeah, they claim it was 750 grand that, you know, it's worth four, five, six 
10 billion, something like that. Just wild, right? Yeah. Then, you know, there's an investor in Heiko who is a just average doctor. Um, I think Forbes also wrote about, uh, I wrote down the name, Herbert Wertheim. And I thought that was interesting. He just bought it many years ago and held on and never really like did it, you know, the true buy and hold, testament to buy and hold. Um, another individual one that I, I, I found intriguing, Kevin Douglas, who is a telecom entrepreneur, when Monster Beverage was Hanson Natural, put a couple million in and it turned into, you know, it's definitely north of a billion dollars. And, you know, that was through many years of just hanging on, many ups and downs. Uh, quite impressive, like tremendous IRR. And then I wanted to give one example of like a professional investor that like it, that really impressed me, not just for the, uh, sorry, I got two examples here, that really impressed me for, for the returns, but also like how they did it and what they did. I think Ackman's GGP investment, general growth properties, which also resulted in Howard Hughes, was extremely impressive. And what Jeffrey Ubbin at Value Act did with Adobe, like companies literally call it pulling in Adobe now. Um, so strategically, he was uh, the first activist, I think, to be like, let's build a true subscription business out of a licensed product. Let's go the subscription route, right? Everyone's becoming a, a subscription business these days. He like led a company to do it sat on the board and stayed with the investment through it instead of just, you know, rattling his saber and getting out. Like he really wanted to own the business in this new state. And, you know, his returns were quite impressive too. So those were some of the examples I had. John, how about you? Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating topic. Um, I think uh, when you talk Alibaba, there's also the Goldman Sachs story with Alibaba where they uh, made some decent return, but then sold out. But if they had held on, like their stake would be worth as much as all of Goldman today or that's, something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's actually cited in the original tweet that I got this idea from. So they, they apparently sold their stake in 2004 for 22 million. And if mm -hmm. the math is correct, that stake would be worth 200 billion. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Goldman didn't really need to do any M&A or banking. All they had to do was just hang on to their Alibaba shares and uh, go on the beach. Yeah. Yep. But uh, we all know that hanging on is sometimes the toughest part uh, in investing. Um, and, you know, the, the Berkshire and Apple example is, is also really interesting uh, because, and, and I draw kind of, uh, I guess, not very obvious conclusion here, but both of you guys emphasized the difficulty in doing what Berkshire did to take $30 billion, deploy that, and then make like $80 billion. And uh, the fact that it's so difficult to me suggests that uh, small investors are really better off uh, looking at small caps because Doing what Berkshire did in a mega cap is just super hard. But in small cap land, there's a lot more examples of, of getting 4x returns and even much more than that. Um, but in terms of, you know, greatest investments ever, I think uh, just ask any Russian oligarch today 
how they became multi-billionaires. A lot of them really didn't start out with a lot of money, but when the when that privatization scheme hit where uh, basically every employee of a formerly state-run enterprise got some shares and they had no clue what those what that paper was worth. Uh, those guys traveled the country and just offered a little bit of hard cash uh, for that paper, and that's turned into billions. Um, or you take the Chandler brothers uh, of uh, Sovereign Capital, uh, who I think turned about $10 million into billions without any outside capital. So this is pure investment returns. Um, one tweet that I want to mention uh, is by Joe Frankenfield of uh, Saga Partners. And uh, that was on April the 8th. Uh, it's at Saga Partners. And it was really interesting because he um, basically tweeted about some the greatest stock market winners from 2000 till 2020. So the last 20 years. Uh, that had a market cap of less than a hundred million to start with, and um, so some companies on that list, uh, Monster Beverage, went from a market cap of thirty-nine million in two thousand to forty-nine billion by twenty twenty. So that's a what a thousand x plus return. Or um, Booking Holdings went from two hundred twenty million in two thousand to ninety one billion in twenty twenty. Um, just a really really interesting list. And but I think um, one, you know, kind of what we can take away. How do we actually replicate this going forward? I think the wrong conclusion would be say if you find them small enough, like below a hundred million market cap. You can pay up as long as it's a good business. You can you still have that super long runway and you're going to make huge returns. But here's the fascinating part, and it's not immediately obvious from the table because it's not a column. But um, if you look at sales versus market cap, you realize that actually almost all of the companies on the list were trading below one time sales to start with. So if people today who are paying like 20 times sales and whatnot think that they're going to make these kinds of returns, it's just not going to happen. As an example, Monster Beverage had a 39 million market cap when they had 80 million of sales. So they were half of sales. Booking Holdings, 220 million market cap, already had 1.2 billion in sales. You know, today people would pay like 20 billion for that. That's not how you're going to make a huge return. So it's really fascinating to kind of deconstruct what's actually happened because people sometimes invent stories that just aren't true. You know, oh, it's a great business. So I just need to find it when the runway is long enough and hold it long enough and I'll make a huge return. Well, you got to also look at what you're paying. And these huge winners, uh, Apple, Apple is on the list. When it had a five billion market cap in 2000, in 2020 it was 2.2 trillion. But guess what uh, sales number Apple had when it was a five billion market cap? It had eight billion in sales. Again, less than one time sales. So to me, you really got to marry 
business quality or potential business quality, because often it's not going to be obvious. That's why it's trading for less than one-time sales. But if you can really figure that out and pay not too much, you could have an amazing result. So to riff off of that a little more, John, I actually looked through that and combed through to try to figure out which ones were the companies who had price-to-sales compress or move the least. And so first off, only three of them started with what I'd call like, not just what I'd call, three of them started with price-to-sales above eight. And two of those three had price-to-sales compress. And one, I'd say, doesn't count. Regeneron was at 13 times price-to-sales when it started, four times now, but they were like, pre-product biotech in the beginning of the list. It was like, life, you know, uh, uh, product milestone revenues in, in the very mm-hmm. beginning. Salesforce, I think, is pretty damn notable because they started this period. Now, a caveat applies. He's talking about the IRR and market cap, not per share. And so Salesforce yep. per share returns are not going to be quite as good as, as the IRR here. But it went from 8.1 times sales to 7.9 times sales. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, they're a really good quality growth company. And I wouldn't have expected that they've had these kinds of returns with without the benefit of price to sales along the way. I think it speaks some to the fact that there's been considerable dilution, including in their M&A strategy, but also they've acquired pretty well and all that. And yeah, I mean, definitely stood out that if you truly want great returns, you almost by definition, have to have some accre- some some upside uh, from from the actual multiple, especially the price to sales multiple. So it's got to come from either margin or phenomenal growth. Yeah, and just for context, uh, to be clear, that was three companies out of fifty. Right, there were fifty on that list. Exactly, and the third is Intuitive Surgical. They went from like eleven times sales to eighteen. So just to, for completeness, there that was the third that had uh, a high price to sales to start. Yeah, I, so those are great points. I'd put price matters on my original <laughs> notes here and somehow skipped over that. So thank you. I mean, it, it, it goes without saying. I mean, I was talking about this recently. I mean, I, it's just when you start from a crazy high price, you can still get a decent result if you're willing to stick it out for, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, however long it, it takes. If the business is really that good, you can still get a good result from that, but you're not going to get a great result. So that does go without saying. I mean, the other thing that jumps out to me is that everything here uh, describes ownership and it describes direct ownership and it describes ownership before any sort of frictional costs. So these are all returns on paper. They don't include any, you know, wealth advisors. I doubt there were any involved, but there would have been eventually. There's no taxes, there's no commissions, there's no friction of any kind here, which is really important. So I think, uh, you know, it highlights if you were to take off a few points a year off of some of these returns, you know, maybe not so much where, again, it doesn't get down to where it matters as much, but it's, uh, the the dollars really do pile up. Um, and and it's funny, Elliot, you mentioned Google and, and we've talked about this before, but this was one I added to the list um, personally was they paid uh, 1.65 billion in stock for YouTube in 2006, October, 2006. And I remember thinking at the time that I didn't understand uh, and I believe that they will have done what fifteen or twenty billion in in ad revenue alone last year at YouTube. I mean, if YouTube were a standalone company right now, what would it be worth? I think that I think that investment would go down in the Hall of Fame, right? 
Absolutely. Truly incredible. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, were mystified by, I, none of us mentioned Facebook purchasing Instagram. It's quite similar. It's in on, that sense. it's on the original list. I just, yeah, I skipped out. I skipped over that one, but yeah, that's, that's another one. I think they paid an even billion for that, right? When it had almost no business model to speak of and that one's worked out pretty well. Yeah. I wasn't sure if we should include corporate M&A in the first place though, because I think the fact stands that were YouTube or Instagram standalone and they didn't have a very strong foundation to grow off of who could handle some of the challenges that each were going to and would have faced on their own. Like there's no way the same uh, blue sky could have been realized. So I think that's important. No, I, I agree. Yeah. There, it, it's almost its own category. And and again, that's why I tried to oversimplify by saying it's either explosive growth or explosive growth or some sort of distressed uh, situation, either a distressed, financing or a distressed acquisition or a distressed entry price. Um, so to your point, I mean, yeah, the corporate M&A is a different kind of investing and it's a little bit apples to oranges. But that's why I find like the Wertheim Heiko investment and the Kevin Douglas, like Hanson Natural, now Monster investment. So damn interesting because these were just like regular people who had no special investment competency, you know, well, Sorry, it it might be wrong of me to say competency. They might be incredibly competent. It just wasn't their primary profession. It wasn't their job to source investments. And they put their own capital into it, not investing other people's money. And they held on through the you know ups and downs along the way. Um, to me, that's like a totally different level than some of these others. Um, I find that to be like extremely impressive. It's so hard psychologically to sit through you know, I think Monster had like three different uh, 50 plus percent drawdowns along the way. Could you imagine, you know, the thought process you may or may not have had along the way? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, at Berkshire's, I mean, Berkshire's had at least three 50% drawdowns, right? I mean, every every business will have that kind of decline in its quoted price if you stick around for long enough. And then, yeah, what do you do? I mean, it, and, and no matter what it is, I, there have been some great charts and studies published on this. You know, you're going to spend the vast majority of the time owning this. So if you own anything for a decade or two, and it's a total rocket that does, you know, enormously well over that period, you're going to spend the vast majority of that time, you know, something like 97 or 98% of your days owning that asset will be at 5, 10, 20% below its all-time high. Right, it's just in the nature of things that they do not go up linearly. It's not like every day you open up your your brokerage statement and you show a higher number. You're if you if you look at it when it's at an all time high and anchor on that number, you're going to be below that number almost all the time. And I've said this a lot. Like what the market tries to do is fool you into doing the wrong thing. Like it's acting on you. You know, it's nice to think that Mr. Market's just our business partner and we're the rational. Uh, you know, cold-hearted capitalist sitting here like doing business with someone who's, you know, kind of stupid alongside us in the form of Mr. Market. But Mr. Market's actually like acting on you. These moves are supposed to make you feel things and change how you think. That's exactly why sentiment tends to be, you know, most euphoric at tops and, you know, most depressed at bottoms. Like, Sentiment's exactly opposite of what it should be at, at a given point in time. 
Um, so, you know, we all aspire to be rational, but price is most definitely trying to act on us. Agreed. Yeah, I'll just say, I mean, what's it, it's it's kind of hard to sometimes make these judgments ex ante, you know, ex post, you can say that person was smart. Uh, but actually, if you look at that list of 50 um, examples uh, that um, Joe Frankenfield tweeted about, there's more than 10 companies on that list that actually had a negative IRR from 2010 to 2020. So more than 20% of those companies that were outstanding performers would have actually lost you money for a decade after the first stellar decade. And so, you know, for those, it would have been the right decision to, to take your profits and, uh, and move on. Or, you know, when I look at um, now, there's that guy who has made like millions holding Tesla for super long through thick and thin, and he's now kind of prominent on Twitter and says he'll never sell and even quit his job. And I'm thinking, dude, sell, you know, <laughs> take the money and and do, you know, build a diversified portfolio now. You know, may, you made 10 million on one stock, now do something that's actually the conservative and sane thing to do, you know? But if Tesla goes up another 10x, then he's going to look really smart, but who knows? And and actually, if if we had to guess, I mean, you look at the valuation and so forth, you might say, hey, this is not a great risk-reward. So it's just really tough to... Um, to make judgments uh, on on some of these things, yeah, it is, and I think you're right that the best the best way to enable yourself to have the patience to not sell at the wrong time is to make it so that you almost don't care, or you're you're certainly not going to be tied up either financially or emotionally if the stock or the asset declines 50, 70, 80 percent, whatever it is. So, I mean, you're going to deal with that volatility whether the future is bright or whether the future future is ugly. So. If you can have a job or a diversified portfolio or asset of some kind outside of the investment and under consideration, I think that's what's most important to give you the the freedom and the intellectual freedom to do what's what's necessary. Well said. Well, uh, let's move on, uh, Elliot, to your topic of the week. Well, so I think uh, you know Phil introduced his topic talking about his love hate relationship with Twitter, and I think it's only natural. I'm going to talk about things that are polarizing, where people either love or hate them, and I find those things that are polarizing to be incredibly interesting. I had to look up the exact source of when I first like thought about this affinity, and it took me a while to develop it for later. There was a Harvard Business Review article in 2013 called "Make the Most of a Polarizing Brand." And it talked about how a lot of people love certain brands and a lot of people hate those same brands. And that you could have a brand campaign. They used Miracle Whip as an example. There's like some portion of people, I didn't, I didn't realize, I'm, I'm sorry to know that there's some people that hate it this much, but some people absolutely hate Miracle Whip and there are many who absolutely love it. And so, you know, they launched a brand campaign that played into the polarizing nature of it. Saw a huge surge in interaction on social media and sales. And, you know, Harvard Business Review argued that you know, these brands who find themselves with like a, a polarizing image, you know, every brand, they said, should not just look at mean 
and net promoter scores, net scores alone, that they should look at the dispersion. They should look to see the extent to which they have super fans and super haters. And actually that having haters is in many respects a good thing. Um, you could take two different strategies. One is you figure out uh, who the haters are, find out why they hate you, and maybe try to address those concerns and you know increase your actual fan base. Um, but you could also kind of like play into the haters and stoke and provoke them. And you could get a whole lot more press and earned media and not actually have to pay for a certain kind of exposure that, you know, gets things going. Polarizing by definition, I guess it, you know, it means that you do have people who love you. And that's really important. Like every business, everyone, every person wants people to love them. So, you know, the average brand that people are pretty mad about that don't care much, that that doesn't matter all that much. You have to do something else well to get yourself customers. But when you're polarizing and you have people who love you in that way, they're going to evangelize you. And that's really important. That'll get you some of your customers. And so, you know, I'm talking about companies here, but I think it's true insofar as corporate culture and people go. Um, when I was doing my diligence on Cognex uh, several years ago, and obviously diligence is an ongoing process, but one of the things that I, at first I was like, what's going on here? There were Glassdoor reviews by and large. They've, they've since improved considerably, but at the time they were like a three star on Glassdoor. And, you know, every review is either five stars or one star. There was no like, they're just okay. They have this corporate motto, work hard, play hard, move fast. And people you know, there were either like, this is the best place I've ever been. It's changed me for the better as a person. I really absolutely love it. Or, you know, I, I, I don't like it. And I think to the extent that a culture is polarizing, it's self-selecting and ensures those people who totally buy in, who are committed to the company and the cause are those who stay and who make it their career. Um, and so that self-selecting nature of it, I find pretty interesting. Then you could look at like Steve Jobs and Apple, like both the person and the company. I think the entire ethos has been somewhat polarizing from the very beginning. And there are, you know, still to this day, many Apple haters um, who would never go near one of their products. And, you know, by and large, I mean, I'm sure we know how many people are Apple lovers who absolutely adore them and evangelize them. And, you know, I think that's really interesting as far as a brand and as far as Steve Jobs goes. I mean, you could find people that will say, uh, no, no one is literally no one is neutral about Steve Jobs. And I think that's really interesting. You could say the same about Trump, too. Um, one of the things that polarizing people do is they make it such that you cannot pick a side. You have to either be extremely for or extremely against. And that results in a whole lot of earned media alongside, you know, the sorting mechanism of it all. And then, you know, I think disruption and disruptive brands and disruptive companies, like disruption, the word is a polarizing word. Like if you look up the definition of disruption, it starts with the word disturbance. When you think about disruption, like in your childhood class, when you were at school, like the disruptive kid, that was not a good thing. But an in innovation, it's decisively good, though an innovative company that is disruptive can often have, um, you know, passionate haters, especially from the uh, status quo, from the entrenched powers that are being disrupted. 
Um, so, you know, I have this uh, strong affinity toward things that are identifiably polarizing um, in investment, um, in studying business people and processes. Um, you know, it doesn't mean I uniformly like something that's polarizing, but I find it interesting and I find it worth paying attention to because a lot of times, you know, you just can't even get the source of the appeal, the source of the passion, but knowing that it's there has very strong signal value. And I've found, you know, pretty interesting investment angles in looking at, you know, people, businesses, or cultures that are in fact polarizing. Curious what you guys uh, think about this topic and and polarizing stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think we're probably at a peak, at least in my lifetime, in people using polarization as an explicit marketing strategy. And I think, I don't know what the historical parallel would be in terms of prior generations and, and the strategies that strategies they, they've employed. I mean, it's certainly not new, but it just feels like every day you reach an all-time new low in shamelessness where people are willing to sell out almost everything that you would otherwise think they care about or believe in to use polarization as a way to drive attention or money in their in their favor. Uh, like you said, whether it's politics in, in about every way, shape, and form, or whether it's people going on social media and stirring the pot intentionally, you know, acting as a troll to to divide and and to to use that as a way to spark attention and clicks and eyeballs and that sort of thing. And yeah, it's in terms of brands and investing, I mean, I actually never really thought about it this way. And I I mean, you hear about, there's kind of the common idea of go look for battleground stocks, so to speak, where there's a sharply divided opinion. And maybe that's shown in a very low valuation, or maybe that's shown in a high short interest or something like that. And I think that's an appealing tactic for younger, brash uh, investors. It's something that I certainly used to be drawn to, at least in part. And the more I've gone along, the more I've kind of shied away from that. I mean, I think the best investments, or at least the best framework for me is an area where, you know, yeah, sure, I might have a variant perception, but where I'm really just more exploiting uh, some sort of cornerstone insight or some sort of advantage that that tilts the odds in, in my favor over a long period of time so that the reaction is more of a shrug and kind of an acknowledgement that, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. That might work. And then people kind of forget about it. It might not be the most interesting or sexy thing in the world. And, and to your point about what I said earlier about Twitter, I mean, that's kind of one of the things that drives me nuts about Twitter or any social media, frankly, is that it seems to just propagate this need that a lot of people have to just have a hot take on absolutely everything and a need to drive this polarizing opinion like black or white, yes or no, up or down, good or bad. They just constantly have to be shouting that out when that's almost never the right answer. So um, yeah. And then, and again, I, the, the one thing I'm still struggling with and trying to come up with a decent answer is, is your comment on, on everything from miracle whip to Apple um, on down. You know, I had not, I had not thought about that. I'm going to have to do a little more, thinking as to what might be driving those sorts of behaviors and whether or not it's truly an explicit strategy or if people just kind of default to it without even realizing and whether or not it's effective. I mean, it's a really interesting topic. So I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to circle back on that one. Yeah. I, I love the topic, Elliot. I think it's certainly a huge topic uh, in our world. I mean, we, we seem to live in a world that feeds on polarization 
Um, and yet, at the same time, we also live in seemingly the most politically correct moment in history as well. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Like, you're not sure what you're allowed to say. And at the same time, it's the most polarized uh, we've ever been. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for polarization as a part of a business strategy. I mean, it kind of uh, dovetails with the, the advice that you should go niche uh, if you're starting a business, uh, the way to be the best or, or to dominate uh, your market is to go niche and uh, then be number one in, in whatever small uh, field you choose, and then you can expand from there. That's a little bit kind of chosen uh, polarization. Um, and then, you know, Elliot, you mentioned um, haters are good. Um, I would agree with that as long as uh, they're not like a sovereign dictatorship that can hack you into oblivion or or worse. So you got to kind of pick your haters a little bit. You like they should hate you, but they shouldn't really be able to do much harm. Um, it's definitely a way of defining yourself as a company. And I've seen some companies, uh, you know, successfully say uh, not just who should be a customer, but also who should not be a customer. And that way you kind of uh, avoid those negative reviews. I mean, if you basically, um, through your communication, uh, stop the people from signing up who would afterwards uh, leave you a negative review and impact your business uh, negatively, it's better to just not have those folks as customers uh, because, uh, for you know, it's, it's obvious. I think, you know, polarization, as much as we are aware of it today, has been with us uh, throughout history. I mean, if I really think about it, to me, anything that is defined by birth is kind of polarizing. I mean, nation states are polarizing. You know, just because I'm born in some geography, now I'm this nation or I'm this religion. You know, that's you are polarizing people based on something that really they're not, they cannot affect uh, themselves. Um, I also feel like polarization is a potentially a great tactic for challengers, you know, kind of um, uh, guerrilla warriors in the in the corporate sense. Um, it, it's probably not a great uh, strategy for incumbents, although, you know, there comes that some version of the, uh, the innovator's dilemma, right? Like, if you let a challenger define you as, as the old uh, stale incumbent, uh, you, you could be in trouble. Um, you know, how does this apply to the markets and investing? Um, I do feel like there's, uh, there are some uh, points of polarization these days, certainly between um, active and passive management uh, between momentum and value investing and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and yeah, it's it could be a good uh, strategy to seek out uh, polarization. At the same time, it could be even better to just seek out um, you know strategies that are where where you have an edge where where others just are not looking. Uh, that seems even better than trying to disagree with smart people and and be even smarter. So yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting topic. I'm not sure that I 
kind of have figured it out how to apply polarization necessarily, but uh, definitely a fascinating uh, thing to look into. I was going to circle back to, I mean, what you said, John, is absolutely right. It's it's clearly based in our most tribal, you know, ancestral instincts to, you know, have a strong opinion that can be easily provoked uh, by someone who, d- who wants to be polarizing. And, and nation states, city states have operated on that basis for millennia. So that is very true. My, my earlier point was about, I think because you can be anonymous and physically distant, it's so much easier to use polarization as a tactic now to stir that pot and get, you know, you used to have to kind of sacrifice your physical safety if you were really going to truly be polarizing, right? I mean, it would have been a lot easier, uh, you know, in in prior generations, instead of leading a nighttime raid, you could have just fired off a mean tweet or something, right? It's, it's a lot different now. So that, that was, that was kind of my point is that I think we're preying on some ancient tendencies and using the very sharp spear of technology to do it. And and Elliot, in terms of your examples, I mean, I think the one thing that I'm I'm leaning toward is that it's a to John's point, it's a very effective piece of guerrilla marketing if you want to take on the big guy and David David versus Goliath, you know, to be polarizing and point out everyone else's flaws and you kind of slip in under the radar. Uh, despite all the flaws you probably have on your own. I, I don't know. I mean, do you think it really works for bigger companies? I mean, you're right. I think Steve Jobs was a polarizing figure in the sense that people had strong opinions and there were a lot of people who were intensely loyal to them, to him, and there were a lot of people who didn't like him. But I'm not sure that ever really stopped somebody from buying uh, an Apple product, right? And, and so I, Sure, but how about the Cognex example, right? A company whose culture is polarizing and self-selects the employees who are the best fit. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a little bit different. I mean, I, I agree that seems to be more prevalent. It can be a lot more, again, I think, no matter what the company is, at an early stage, you almost have to craft a narrative of us versus them, right? You have to get your people to believe that you're doing something that's valuable and you're the insurgent, you know, uprising force. And if you don't get people to believe in some sort of narrative like that, they're just going to kind of be, you know, kind of punching a clock, kind of half checked out. So yeah, I, I agree entirely with that. But in terms of like a true marketing strategy for a brand, it's one way to go. It just seems awfully risky and maybe not necessary in a lot of cases. Yeah, I don't want to overemphasize the brand angle. That was just my introduction to this idea that there's a silver lining and could be something really good to being polarizing, right? But look at Bridgewater in the investment world too. Their culture is, you know, kind of famous or infamous for being somewhat polarizing. Uh, And that's interesting. I I think it leads to a certain kind of person working there and a certain kind of person not working there. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that internally, it probably matters. I guess that's where I'd shake out. Internally, it probably matters even more than externally. I, again, I just think it gets really risky for any organization to start taking intentional pot shots to stir, you know, stir up controversy and to create polarization where there isn't enough already. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily like that strategically or tactically. I mean, your idea should be to find universal love, right? But certain products by their very nature are polarizing. I think one of the things that makes Apple so polarizing is, you know, they are explicit in this, we know what you want better than you know what you want. And, you know, especially those people who think that there are things where that's unequivocally untrue for them with respect to Apple, um, or whether they think they, you know, know better or, or are far more technically inclined than the average person, 
you know, they're distinctly not the customer. And I think, you know, to what uh, John was saying, making sure that those who will leave you bad reviews don't end up there. I think that's, you know, something that's pretty valuable and interesting. And it helps as a brand to play into that. And you could choose to play into that by, you know, really kind of like stoking uh, the love of the lovers and, you know, creating haters in the process. I feel like Duke basketball is a bit like that uh, with their fan base. Um you know, or some certain sports fan bases, I think, tend to be pretty polarizing in that sense. Um, yeah, they do. They do encourage that. I guess a lot of sports teams. I hadn't thought of that. That's a good point. And they're inherently tribal, right? I mean, that is they're very what, tribal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I think I I think it's interesting. I think it's multiple layers. You know, I've I've seen leaders. I mean, part of being a leader is saying things that are um, unpopular at times. Um. And by unpopular, I don't mean like hateful. I mean, you know, tell people the hard stuff they don't want to hear at times. That's more of what I mean. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, you tend to shoot the messenger. Um, and that creates like a polarization in, in understanding and intent and belief behind them. Um, but, you know, I think... Um, when your your inevitable goal as a as a person, business, or culture is to f- make sure that you know there are people who love you. That you know, in certain, especially consumer oriented businesses, you want to have a high net promoter score so that there are people out there who will recommend you. And I think that inherently comes with some portion of people who don't like you for some reason or another. Yeah, I think you know it's a great topic. I think there's a ton of nuance here. And I love the Cognix and Bridgewater examples. And, uh, you know, that point that Phil made about kind of intentionally using polarization as a strategy versus having polarization as a result of, let's say, strong values. You know, I think as if polarization is the result of strong values at a company, let's say, that's great. You know, maybe that's the case with Cognix. With, with Bridgewater, where those guys just had really well-defined um, MO and values, and uh, that led to polarization. Uh, that was the outcome, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, I, or, or, you know, the example of kind of, um, kind of not having the customers you don't want because they'd leave a bad review. I mean, just think of the Nigerian phishing scams where basically, um, you know, there's a TED talk about this, I think, but where they deliberately put uh, spelling errors into those phishing emails to weed out anyone who <laughs> would cause them trouble later on when after being scammed. So you are only left with the people who don't see through an obvious scam, and those are your ideal people to be scammed. Um, you know, sucks as an example, but apparently it's been uh, effective. Or, um, you know, another example, if you want to talk Twitter uh, and Twitter followers, I do think if you're polarizing, you're going to end up uh, with more followers. And I have to admit, you know, sometimes I actually, you know, I kind of try not to call out people by name on Twitter but I kind of rejoice when someone else does it for me and calls out someone that I'd love to call out. So then I just meekly like that tweet. Uh, but I can definitely see that polarization is going to get you uh, more of a following. 
Yeah, I've always joked with a friend of mine that, you know, he's kind of always begrudging his low Twitter follower count. And I told him, look, there's a very simple formula. You can either just constantly tweet out news and random nonsense and make it like a scrolling Bloomberg feed. You can constantly tweet out investment ideas or minutiae about certain companies or whatever so that people think they're getting some sort of investment idea flow out of it. You can just go attack people and start a bunch of flame wars and just start being, you know, the loudest jerk in the room and that'll do the trick for sure. And I mean, I just don't find any of those all that appealing, right? So my my friend Madav Manham has been really smart about this. And he he told me very early on, he's like, yeah, I think a good rule for any social media is just never say anything bad about anyone ever. And and it gets back to, you know, lots of wisdom. Like you can always tell the guy to go to hell tomorrow or whatever. And it's a rule that I've tried to follow maybe to less than a hundred percent of the time, but it's, it's worked pretty well for me. And I, I agree. I just have so little interest in being polarizing personally, which is probably going to come as a, a surprise. There's probably some people who know me that would hear that and chuckle under their breath and say, what are you talking about? Because in real life, I'm, I'm very different, but I just have no interest in being that, stir the pot polarization figure out there. I just don't see the reward in it. Yeah, I'm 100% with you there. And I tend to be like, insofar as there are a lot of polarizing figures within FinTwit and Twitter in general, like I'm a hater (laughs) when it comes down to it. Um, I tend not to, you know, develop much affinity for those figures who are incredibly polarizing. But it is, you know, tactically speaking, quite uh, powerful in building an audience Um, In the early days of FinTwit, I used to joke that I was like, the only person who would uh, praise Bernanke, not like gold and not like Apple. And I called that the holy trinity of hate on uh, FinTwit in the early days. Um, But yeah, no, I, I find it more interesting in like an academic sense. And I do think in certain areas, it's, it's, it's just so valuable. But um, I, I'm, I'm trying to refrain from naming names, but there's certain people who I find their behavior just like despicable on, on Twitter where, you know, they say things that are provocative for no reason. Though there is one genre of it that I do find interesting, which is that of developing half-baked ideas in public, throwing out something that's, you know, maybe not totally provable and fully fleshed out to see the reaction and to see, you know, what sort of information you get out of it. Um, that insofar as I'm a kind of universal hater, that's one genre I really do appreciate. But Elliot, you know, I'll say you, you have a really good uh, Twitter presence and you add a ton of value. I mean, I can say I've made money from things you've tweeted about. Um, and what I appreciate is you actually, and and I've seen, I think I've seen more of it recently where you'll just flat out disagree with people um, on <laughs> substance, you know, not like a polemicizing, but really just on, on facts and substance. And I really appreciate that because a lot of folks would kind of just shy away from that to just not have the hassle and so forth. But for someone like me, that's super helpful. Yeah, I've been told at times that I could be a little blunt with some kinds of disagreements, but I think it's important. You know, I, as I aspire to build like a, a investment firm, not just be an investor who works, you know, with a firm structure around me would love 
to build a culture where you could have open collaboration and where ideas stand up or fall down on their own merits or lack thereof. And it's not the person, but the idea that you're kind of attacking and building at the same time. And, you know, I think there's something quite powerful when you could set aside ego and just get into actual conversation about the substantive matters. And I think that's one of the things I've gotten off into it. I've actually had incredible interactions where people have disagreed with me and changed my mind or brought new information to light and helped me, you know, get better. And that's one of the things I like about putting myself out there. Um, you know, as far as I'm not shy to tell some people, I think some things are wrong. There are thousands of other people who will jump on you and pounce on anything they think is wrong. And I think that's, you know, pretty damn powerful. And, you know, there's sometimes where I'm like, oh, I hate, I hate that I just said something that I feel is wrong, but like, you know, it really could help a lot. So do you think there's a balance or how have you managed to create a balance between just arguing with anonymous morons on the internet versus it, who again I, maybe it's just me but I see a lot of people when they get into these debates and it could be well-intentioned I don't know but it just doesn't seem productive because it seems like they're almost defaulting to that behavior where they seek to be polarizing in response even if you are in good faith trying to put out a, a half-baked idea and just learn from it and get smarter the immediate response is to like shoot people down or create a flame war or whatever I mean how, how do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's a little easier now that there's 280 characters than 140, but like you could tell people's uh, intents, whether they're engaging with you in good faith or not, um, whether they're engaging with the spirit of trying to and wanting to learn, or, you know, especially when they start building up straw men or, you know, attacking, shooting the messenger as opposed to the idea. Um, you know, I'm willing to give people the benefit of the doubt at first, um, though I quickly disengage if I feel the intents are not pure. Um, and I think the key is like, you know, I in the very beginning, in my early days on Twitter, when I'd end up in such a situation, my blood would boil for like some period of time. And I'm like, God, I got to calm myself down and go for a walk or something. Um, I've definitely grown much thicker skin. And I think it's a combination of you know, being a little more confident in my own skin, but also being a little more used to it and a little more experienced. So I think, um, you know, I, I could shrug things off very easily. Um, and, and and I think a lot of it is like, comes more internally than externally in that sense. And I think it just comes with time and practice and experience. Um, but one key thing, and and I, I love this point, Elliot, that you made, um, which is really, you know, you got to separate the person from the argument and the facts. And I think, you know, <laughs> you are very much in the minority because you're you're trying to figure things out in public. I mean, really figure them out and you're willing to admit if you're wrong. So, but you don't see that kind of intellectual honesty in 99% of people probably who really do take it personally. So that's really the tough part, I think, with, with trying to have that approach uh, because most people are going to be people and they're going to, you know, take it personally. They're going to be offended. They're going to be defensive and so forth. Um, and, 
you know, it is what it is. Um, it's not going to make you friends. Um, so, but, but I think also sometimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I have a feeling on a few occasions you've kind of corrected people where you kind of knew it wouldn't really result in in them changing their stance, but where you basically recognize that there is such a thing as the power of the narrative. And some of these uh, stocks, you know, um, there is value to the market not misperceiving what's really going on, whether that's with Twitter or Naked Wines or whatever. Um, there are real-world implications for these companies if people stick to the wrong narrative, you know, in terms of cost of capital and, and all kinds of uh, reasons. Um, so, you know, sometimes you have to kind of um, kind of smack down arguments uh, just to be on record, I guess. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that, you know, especially in areas where I feel I've established myself as someone who... Um, or there, there's something tied to me with the idea, and I've established myself as someone who speaks to it in certain cases where especially there are some high-profile things that I feel are flat wrong. Um, you know, had an interesting engagement with a thought leader on Twitter about Twitter recently, and, you know, I didn't really feel like it was very... Uh, I, I don't feel like it was perceived very fairly, um, and I, you know, felt the need to respond again after uh, things were not exactly phrased in a way that I thought was was right. You know, I think in certain cases when there's a distinct right or wrong, um, when you think about like the average use cases for Twitter, there's the conversational element, um, there's the broadcasting element, right? Those are the two reasons why you'd tweet something. You want to broadcast a view or you want to engage with people. Um, there's a third use case, which is just lurking. But, you know, I, I do engage in both you know, the conversational layer and I engage in the broadcasting layer. So I feel at this point, you know, I didn't necessarily feel that maybe a couple years ago, but I have an audience and people who are listening to hear and would like to hear what I have to say about given things. Um, so I think that's what inspires action in those cases. I think in the past I would have been less inclined to do so, but more so now. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think what I'd say is if I could cultivate a world with like not just all Elliot Turners on Twitter, but even just like ten <laughs> percent instead of one percent, I'd be really happy. So it's just tough. I think there's just so much intentional noise and polarization and nonsense and garbage is just tough to wade through it. But you're right. I mean, the the people and relationships that are real that you can generate online and translate into the real world are why you know, it's worth pursuing. So I would never write it off entirely, that's for sure. And one of the interesting wrinkles to Twitter is that people can be anonymous or pseudonymous. And in doing so, you know, there is a... I, the idea of anonymity on Twitter is very polarizing. And I am decisively in favor of it. I think it's extremely valuable. Um, I think some of the best people to engage with in this really constructive way because, you know, they know you're not attacking the person. You're attacking not even, uh, you're attacking ideas, right? There's no person standing behind it per se, so they don't have to feel like their ego is being attacked. Um, and some of these people engage incredibly well. 
Um, the flip side of that is because it's not a person and there is no ego attached in that way, there are some really horrible people who are anonymous because it makes it far easier to, you know, when like, like you were saying, Phil, before, um, you know, if you have to stand up there to a person face to face and say nasty things, it's very different than to sling a line online. And it's especially different when you're anonymous and you could just say whatever the hell you want without any personal repercussions. Um, so, you know, that's that's one of the, uh, you know, that conversation you had a couple weeks ago about holding two competing ideas in your head at the same time. Um, that's my love-hate with anonymity on Twitter. Um, but so many more good engagements than bad happen out of it. One thing I'd recommend to you all is if people ever are like just not good on Twitter to engage with or to interact with, I'd say mute them. It's even more powerful than blocking because you'll just never see them. They won't know you block them. And, uh, you know, it's as if they're not there. I've muted a ton of people who I just don't feel like are worth uh, even knowing they exist in some way. Yeah, good point. Phil? I've, I've muted more people than I care to admit. And I've muted lots of individual topics and keywords and phrases and all sorts of things. So you're right, that might be the single most powerful use case on Twitter is just to use it as a highly filtered information channel. And the more you filter, the better it'll be. And if someone is like, if you ever find yourself scrolling to your feed and someone just like, consistently annoys you, like definitely mute them, you know, don't, don't feel the need. I, there are some people out there who are like, yeah, it's really important to make sure you have diverse views and you follow all sorts of dissenting views. I definitely think that's true. You should avoid the echo chamber, but like the people who annoy you are probably not engaging in good faith. They're probably not out there to like, uh, they're, they're definitely not open to having their minds changed. So like, why not just mute them and, and pretend they're not there because they don't have to be. We're getting into kind of Twitter, uh, advanced Twitter usage here. But uh, uh, one one thing that I've done that's just completely changed my, my feed is actually not mute accounts, but mute words. So... Um, a ton of a lot of my feed was was political. It was like, you know, these battleground stocks and and so what I've I've muted Trump, I've muted Biden, I've muted uh, Tesla, I've muted Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, I don't want any of that. And all of a sudden, my tweet, my feed just got much more quality. And you know, if something's happening with those words that I've muted, I'll find out one way or another, but it's not constant bombardment uh, that that ends up being useless. I bet your blood pressure has been having way less dispersion from that too. Yeah, that's, that's the key, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, fascinating discussion, guys. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, good to speak, and I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Till next week, take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.